At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Wouldn't it have been cool if you could have started a company with five of your fitness buddies, work your butts off, and one day your company raised $90 million from the likes of Mike Tyson, Francis Ngannou, and George St. Pierre? Well, that's exactly what happened with our next guest. Hey, I'm Ted, agency guy and your host for today's episode of Marketing News Canada. Today on the show, we have Patrick Chandler, co-founder of Fight Camp, the at-home boxing company founded by a bunch of Canadians out of Quebec. Oh, and one American. Patrick's journey began as a mechanical engineering student, but when he and his co-founder secured a spot in Y Combinator, he made the bold decision to leave university behind and relocate from Montreal to San Francisco. Over the years, he's navigated the diverse landscape of manufacturing, machine learning, and marketing while spearheading the incredible growth of Fight Camp. Patrick, welcome. Ah, thank you very much for having me, Ted. So, Quebecois, hey? <laughs> yep, although I am admittedly the uh, the more Anglophone of the team. Uh, That's awesome. I can speak That's French, awesome. but it, it's it's not tested as much as uh, as them. I love when we have the pre-calls with our guests, and so the mem- the the listeners won't know this, but you know, this is we we talk on on kind of video, and you know, I was like, oh, Fight Camp, that's a really cool thing. I use it, and da 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 da. And uh, you're like, oh, you yeah, know, I'm, I'm Canadian too, because you were asking me like, oh, where are you from? Like Vancouver. And you're like, oh, I'm Canadian too. I'm like, really? And then like, he like stands up slightly, and you see a Montreal Canadiens T-shirt. I'm like, fucking a, that's awesome. Oh, wait, I shouldn't be swearing. Frickin' a. That's awesome. <laughs> and so y'all started it. You dropped out of school and, and you know, you were a mechanical engineering student, but you got into manufacturing machine learning and you're the CMO of the company. So how does that work? Yeah, it's a, it's a really fun beginning story because while I was in school, I was supposed to get a job in the summer and I'd worked at this company for a few years and it actually went under, didn't tell me. And I was like about to go to work. And then someone was like, hey, by the way, like the company you're about to go to is like no longer exists. Uh, and it was a mechanical engineering like job for a student. And so I literally just walked around campus and I was like, I stumbled onto an event that was people wanting to start startups in their area. And I'm like, no one would hire a mechanical engineer for a startup. 
So I told everyone I was a software engineer. <laughs> so you lied. Great. That's what all well, entrepreneurs do. I have written software in the past. I wouldn't say I was great at it, but I had definitely done it. And so I went around and I told them what I had done in the software space. I had helped like one of my friends build a video game when we were kids um, for fun on a browser. And so I went around and I pitched that and probably no one believed me. And then I got to the, the final uh, person that was Khalil, our, our current CEO. And I said, no, 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 I'm a software person. And he goes, actually, we're looking for mechanical engineers. <laughs> and I'm like, well, lo and behold, that is actually what I am uh, studying. <laughs> so that's, that's the origin story of how we all kind of met. And uh, that weird kind of, how do you go from, you know, mechanical engineering to at least talking about starting a company? It was job opportunity. I was like, let's, let's make almost no money at a startup versus making no money not working this summer. Yeah, I guess so. But then, I mean, how do you go from, okay, so yes, mechanical engineering instead of software, that's cool. But you did end up getting into machine learning. You started doing the marketing. I mean, I know when I started my company, you're the chief bottle washer and you did kind of everything, right? But there were six of you. There are six of you, right? And so why would they get the mechanical engineering guy to do marketing and machine learning? Yeah, it's it's uh, possibly a non-traditional path, but you'd be surprised how many CMOs I meet that have a background in engineering because it, it does tend to look a bit like a black box system you want to figure out. So you're like, hey, we have to do some sort of input that's media buying, marketing, positioning, something happens in the middle with the consumer, and then you get sales at the end. So to try to figure out from a systems approach of measurement and analytics, as the company gets bigger and more complex, the engineering background does start to creep back in. So I do quite a bit of like, let's call it analytics, data, a little bit more analyzing problems from an engineering perspective than I do from a pure marketing perspective. But the big question is, how do you go from one to the other? So in the beginning, it's kind of the classic startup story is you just try to solve the biggest problem and you move on one at a time. So in the beginning, it was, we're a hardware company. We wanted to build something that was a new tool for boxing. So the very beginning of the product was literally just boxing is really old. Like everyone's just like, punch a bag until your arms hurt. No measurements, no, no way of knowing if you're getting better. Fitbit was getting very big then with pedometers and like, okay, you can actually track running now. So we had the idea that let's try to track boxing. And so when I joined, the view was, hey, let's just do some, let's call it mechanical engineering stuff, velocity calculations, motion, kind of like, uh, you know, you throw a punch, how fast was it? And then that immediately led to, wait, how do you define what a punch is? And then that actually opened up the whole software sphere of machine learning. It's like, okay, if you look at the data, you have to, you could write a bunch of really ugly if statements of if the motion looks like this, it maybe is a jab or a hook, or you can get a machine to do that. So that was one of the first big transitions um, where I went from, okay, I can do velocity because that's something I learned in all my classes. Now the next one is what's a block? What's a parry? What's, you know, the person just moving their hand without thinking about it. And what's actually a punch that they're throwing to hit someone. And so that was the first transition. And I'll stop there, Ted, because that's a bit of a bit of a big one of going from mechanical engineering uh, to machine learning. And then that was the biggest problem at the time. That's really cool. And then so one, there's there's okay, was it five people from Quebec and from Canada and one one from America, but then you know, not a lot of people. Sure, there's a lot of folks that that apply and get accepted to Y Combinator, but they don't get the success that you guys have had. So, where was that journey from from Montreal to San Francisco? How what how does that work? Yeah, I think um, 
you know, when you're in that startup ecosystem, Montreal had a nice startup ecosystem. We were at a co-working space and we were seeing all these other people build their businesses. We started to meet a few people who have built businesses through Y Combinator. And so we're like, you know what, let's just apply for it. We didn't really have a product out there. We didn't really know our users yet. So we wrote a video, submitted it, and of course, rejected. Uh, so got rejected. Oh, the first time you got yeah, rejected. Yeah, first time. First time got rejected. And then uh, we didn't give up. I think it was six months later. We definitely understood the customer a lot better. We understood a little bit more about what we wanted to build. And then we hit our submission in there. And they're like, yeah, you know what? Come down and we'll do the in-person. Which for us was like, every time you look back, it's like everything just felt so crazy big. And then you look back, eh. you know, someone asking to go to a meeting doesn't feel that big anymore. Um, but we went went down there and that was a huge trip for us. So for some people, like very rarely we, do we travel and, and go to places like San Francisco coming and growing up in, in Montreal. I had never been. And so we went down there, got to do the interview, showed off kind of, let's call it, uh, I would say the two rows. I want to say Paul Graham we're a big fan of, which is uh, relentless and resourceful were the two things we showed off uh, in those meetings, which is like, we've pivoted so many times into our business, tried different things in such a short amount of time. And anything that got in our way, we found a way around it. Hence, going from mechanical engineering to machine learning is like, hey, we can't just bring a machine learning person in. We have to figure it out ourselves. So I think showing off that really got us through um, into that one. And, and luckily in our batch, there was a lot of hardware companies. And for those that don't know, hardware companies are hard. Uh, and the reason is, is software. If you build a piece of software, you can give it to everyone in the world tomorrow. If you build a piece of hardware like us, it took us like four years to get it into Canada, <laughs> for example. Because right. there's a lot of physical regulations. There's a lot of shipping costs. There's a lot of demand in that specific area you have to build up over time. So hardware is hard, which is why the six-person founding team makes a little bit more sense when you look at a context of a hardware company. Because you have manufacturing, firmware, like the actual hardware design of the board itself. Now you have logistics, distribution. You have like obviously customer service, marketing, product, app. Like those are just the pieces. So almost each founder mapped one-to-one -one with each kind of like big area of the business we needed to be good at. So how does, how do you guys, I mean, it took quite some time before I would imagine you were, you were monetizing. Maybe I'm wrong, but enough to pay six people. Like it sounds like your story a little bit like a rock band, right? Hey, and then yet all six of you founders kind of stayed on as opposed to, you know, the fifth beetle, you know, that, that kind of dropped off before success came. So how were you feeding yourselves? What did you do to stay focused before you started? Oh, hey, crap, this is a real thing. Yeah, I would say like obviously getting funding from White Combinator gave us a bit of breathing room. But it's like $120,000. I think they've changed the amount that they can give now, but it was $120,000 back in the day. And yeah, six people, that's not a lot of money, um, especially looking at the current lifestyle that the, the world requires of groceries and all those uh, economic pieces. But what I would say is we all lived together. So we moved to San Francisco. We all lived in one house. So we played one bit of rent and we worked out of that office uh, as well. So like we would go sleep, we'd wake up, we'd go down to this giant table in the main living room and we'd all work out of there. So like rent was pooled between all of us for food. We, we would actually do like group cooking. So like me, I would cook for a few people in the house, build like big meals the beginning of the week. I was vegetarian. So you can actually make a lot of meals really, really cheaply. Um, and then I got really into Soylent, which back in the day when it was the powder, this is like the most San Francisco 
tech bro thing I, I will ever say, but like <laughs> to save money and to be more efficient, I would drink a lot of Soylent, like straight yeah. from the powder when it tasted Ooh. like pancake mix and Ooh. Cheerio milk. Um, and so that would sustain uh, us. But yeah, we basically lived paying ourselves almost no money, basically just enough to maybe go get a meal every week <laughs> and, and enough for groceries. So at the beginning, yeah, hyper dedication. All of us believed in the mission, the vision. It was the six of us just trying to make things work. And to answer your question of like, how long did it take to monetize? The tough thing about hardware, but something we did solve early on was we could actually build prototypes and we weren't afraid to sell them. YC is a big fan of like the best validation is someone buying the thing. So they basically told us like, hey, you, you have all these like nice things and you're testing them with people. Why don't you ask people to pay for them? Mm. Uh, so that was a big push to be like, okay, it's true. Like they're ugly and they're prototypey, but would people pay for these? So some of the early people we worked with, like the Canadian Olympic team, US Olympic team, we went up to a few of them are like high level coaches. We said, hey, this is, I feel like we sold the first one for like three, $400, which at the time was like, wow, we actually monetized this. Like that's, that's amazing, but they were ready to pay for it. And so that's also how you kind of know, okay, we're solving a real need. If they just want to give us feedback, that's like, a, I think there's a book about this called like the mom test. So I was like, oh, that's nice, honey. Like a lot of people look at your startup and go, oh, wow, that's cool. But then you go, are you willing to pay X amount of dollars to get the services we're offering? That's when you get real validation in the market that there's actually something there. And so in the beginning, that was what we did. We bought 3D printers. We made the hardware. We hand made the boards ourselves. Um, well, whatever, hand soldered batteries onto the boards we were getting uh, fabbed near, near us. And built everything kind of like, I remember I made molds and I would like mix silicon and inject them. And we'd literally make the trackers, 3D printed everything, and then injection molded ourselves. And we just give them to people for like three, three, four hundred dollars and say, hey, this is a beta. This is not going to be pretty, but we'll replace them if they break. Um, so, yeah, early monetization was actually something we, we pushed to do and, and I think did well, especially as a hardware company. It's very hard to just ship, right? It's like shipping code is like, you know, get commit, <laughs> go for it. But uh, this one is a lot more like you actually have to sit down and physically assemble stuff and then physically ship it to people. And that is a burden. Even in the beginning, we bought an $1,000 3D printer and that was a big conversation. That was like, hey guys, like this is, this is like 2% this is like of the money in our bank account. Are we willing to do that for this? And so we had to quickly turn it around and make, I think we made a few thousand within the month off of the early uh, adopters we were going after to sell the product. So that was a big learning, getting in people's hands as well. That's invaluable feedback, right? People being like, hey, I'm running into issues, not with the actual hardware, but with understanding the metrics or you're not showing the right information for me. So hardware company, even though it's hard, you do have to get it in people's hands. So learn how to prototype and build early versions. Don't manufacture, don't do the classic mistake where you manufacture first and then you get it in people's hands and they go, eh, this misses the mark. And you go, well, there goes the company. So that's great. I mean, sounds like sounds like you guys got your hands dirty, literally cooking as well. You were the chef. And then you also got into just testing, getting the prototypes and selling them. And I think a lot of folks, and I mean, I, I, in my day, I see a lot of startups that will try to build it before they come kind of thing, right? The, the whole, the whole field of dreams where you yeah. guys are like, if you build it, they will come is like the classic fallacy. Yeah. It was the classic fallacy. So that's, that's fantastic. Okay. So let's, let's talk about how you meet Mike Tyson or how you, you get George St. Pierre to come and, and help you guys. And I mean, if you look at 
if anyone goes to the fight camp, uh, any of their social media, Mike Tyson's all over it. So how does that work? How do you get into in touch with those people? You being the marketer, were you the person, you know, selling, selling big Mike? What, what were you doing? Iron Mike, I think. <laughs> yep. Yep. Iron Mike. And, uh, I'll start with the George St. Pierre one. Cause, uh, it's the most Canadian story I would say of, of the bunch. And then I'll, I'll, I'll briefly do it with the Mike one, but the George St. Pierre one started really, really early. Now this is like one of the more long play investments we ever did back in the day. Um, when we had almost no money and we were in Quebec working for $50 a seat at a co-working space, we saw that George St. Pierre was doing a session at one of the gyms nearby and doing like a little talk and kind of like a meet and greet. So Khalil and I, so the CEO and myself were like, let's go there and try to convince him to invest <laughs> or like try to show him like we, we had nothing at this point. So this is like way, way early. So we show up to this event and I don't know if you've like ever been to meet and greets, you get like three seconds with the person, right? There's no way you're going to be able to pitch a business and be like, hey, would you invest? Um, <laughs> so on the car right there, we're talking about like, realistically, what do we think is going to happen? And so we came up with a strategy that was go there, try to find out, like find his manager, find the people he talks to a lot and try to convince one of them that it's worth the time to talk about it. Hmm. And so that was our, our strategy is like, we, we got a nice photo with George and, and <laughs> everything, but there's no way in the two seconds you're standing next to him and someone's snapping a photo, you could be like, hey, Mike, do you, or hey, George, do you want to invest? Um, so we met his, um, his manager, uh, which was named uh, was Rodolphe, and mm-hmm. we just started contacting him continuously and we didn't close anything for years. So like, that was a huge early investment. In our view, didn't pan out in the beginning, but then mm-hmm. years and years later, we're like, huh, we still have this person that we've talked to back in the day. So we pulled it back in when we were raising money with an actual business at the time. Back then we literally were just like, we have an idea about trackers for boxing. Do you want to invest? Um, so as time went on, we got more sophisticated and raised around. And then we're like, you know what? Let's open this round to people that we wish we could have in the round. So that's when we got the George St. Pierre, the Francis Ngannou, the Matyson of it. And that George one came from, yeah, that early kind of like call it a Hail Mary of let's show up at a meet and greet and try to pitch someone <laughs> our business. And well, I, mean, uh, I love the idea though. Like you, it sounds like you guys did not let failure even remotely hinder you. I mean, you, you, you applied to Y Combinator, didn't got rejected. Right. And they did it again. You started these prototypes and, and you had to like, Oh, figure out how we're going to do the injection mold. And now we're going to spend 2% of our bank account. And then you go in for, for, shits and giggles they can beat me out for saying that you basically went and tried to hook up with this guy who's you know a canadian superstar as you were and and they were like yeah no you you have an idea good luck and then you came back i guess what two years three years later to, yeah something like that it, did you stay connected with them or just yep yeah we always had- wanted to do something with them but like mm-hmm. it's very hard to convince someone like invest in this thing that we don't even know what it is yet Right. Like, mm-hmm. so we're still in the exploration phase of like, who's a real market? Is this a big business? Um, and so at a certain point, like you have to realize like they don't want to invest in a super uncertain thing, right? They're, the world doesn't really want to do that, especially if you're not like an institutional investor or an angel investor that's actively looking to catch the early wave of something. You probably want to get them somewhere probably near the middle where it's like, okay, de-risked enough, right? This isn't going to be like a, you know, a 1% chance of success. We're in the 10 to 20% chance of success uh, field. Because they can't spread themselves out too thin like a maybe a seed investor or an angel investor could. And so, yeah, that was the, uh, 
a very interesting one. I will say like the Paul Graham one always sticks with me of the relentlessly resourceful aspect of entrepreneurship, which is just like you said, when you run into something, how do you find your way around it? And as a hardware company, you know, it was very unique. Our CTO, I would say, is like genius level on both hardware and software, which is always nice uh, to have. And so we didn't outsource almost anything about the product development uh, in the beginning. So that's a huge blessing because if you just give you perspective to get someone to build an Android app that would do what we wanted to do would cost us $120,000, which was all the money in our bank account. Mm-hmm. So instead, we had our uh, like uh, incredibly intelligent CTO basically learn how to build the app and then build it. And so a lot of these times we'd run into a problem and you, as a startup, you don't have cash to spend on these things. So you can't just be like, oh, I'll just bring in a person who's an expert at this. So all of us had to become experts in different things. And so I'll take the segue to say, and this is why I got into marketing, is we couldn't just hire someone who's a genius at marketing. We needed to use the people we had and we needed to give them the opportunity to learn how to do something that's valuable to the business that was most impactful. And at that time, when I was looking at the problem, I had done the machine learning piece. We had built the algorithm that could track what type of punch you're throwing. The next step is, okay, how do we build prototypes for it? So I worked on the 3D printing with my MechEng background. Like that was, you know, 3D modeling and things like that were, were roughly in my forte. But then after that, it was like, wait, all that's done now. Now we're, we're going to like, we know how to make it. You know, the, the algorithms are, are at a good place. Now, how do we get people to buy this? And so I did a deep dive and I'm like, okay, let me figure out marketing, which <laughs> looking back, like you're not going to figure that in a very short mm-hmm, amount of time. Mm-hmm. But I started doing Facebook ads, started working on website optimizations, Shopify pages, and just really dug into it with incredible urgency and a lot of relentless resourcefulness to try to figure out talking to tons of people. YC is amazing at that. We connected with so many people who are so much smarter than me at all these areas. And I just listened, asked questions and tried to absorb and then try stuff myself. Uh, So that was the beginning. That was how I made the transition to marketing and eventually becoming the CMO of the company. I started as the chief data scientist, just doing algorithm work and maybe mechanical engineering work. And then we're like, hey, we need someone to really understand this and figure it out because especially as you scale, it's one of the biggest levers and biggest risks you have. So if someone gives you, you know, 20, 50, $70 million, a good chunk of that's going into growth through marketing. And so if you don't have a really good data-driven approach at it and a way to be like, here's where I know where we're doing well and here's where I know we're doing poorly, on using the budget, they say growth is guaranteed when you raise funding. If you do not grow after raising funding, something's wrong because even inefficient spend will lead to some level of growth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like they're basically saying like there's an expectation of growth here and your job is to make it as efficient as possible, to make those dollars stretch as far as possible. And I would say that engineering background really helped there because a lot of times if you go to a market and you say, tell me if this channel is working or not, and that person is maybe working on that channel, it's very easy to make the case that every channel is working. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh yeah, we saw more increase in branded search campaign because of our TV ads were running. And you go, but is it actually incremental to the business? If we turn it off, does the business suffer significantly? Uh, and those kinds of bigger questions come from a testing framework that I really enjoyed through my time in engineering. So it's, you're really just trying to figure out what is the real lever you have here? What should you be doubling down on? Where are you good? Where are you bad? I'll stop there on that. Uh, on so that. then, yeah, I mean, that's great. So y- there was a lot of testing. And I think a lot of marketers do is, was there like a particular aha moment when you're like, oh, 
that worked. Let's double down on that. Or, oh, I should have done this more. Or there was this learning that made you go, okay, this is where we put the fuel in the fire. Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll break that into two. So the first part is like um, you mentioned, like every marketer is pretty much like, yeah, we do testing. But in my perspective, not all testing is the same. So you do mm. have to maybe be a little more aggressive with like, be really honest with yourself when you write the hypotheses for certain things and be like, here's what we believe is going to happen. And here's how we're measuring. And if that doesn't happen, just walk away. Like there is this view that it happens to like, even within our team, like even when I think about this a lot, this still happens over and over again, where we think because something has changed that a channel we've tried multiple times will suddenly start working again. And it could be a mix of like, people want to try something new, right? There's some attractiveness about like, let's get on TikTok. Uh, for example, like everyone's on TikTok, but then when you start mm-hmm. to dig in, you go like, ask the smart question of, well, how much are you actually spending on TikTok? And is this just a test for other companies just to get a gauge? Because most people, it's not getting close more than like 10% of their media mix. Um, so even though they're saying they're getting it, it's kind of like the, you know, like a bragging about, oh, we figured it out. When it's mm-hmm. like, if you figure it out, you should be spending 50 to 60% of your money there. Um, so I think people can figure it out at a very small scale. But so the question on like, how to think through good testing to me comes down to exactly that point of like, you can make any channel in a certain lens look good. So if you look at TV and you go, let's check the awareness lift of TV, it's probably going to be better than Facebook ads, but is mm-hmm. that matter for mm-hmm. the business? So I took a very far away approach and I said, we're just going to do, how do you hear about a surveys? That is the number one source of truth. After someone buys, we're going to put in a lot of work, to make sure we get a lot of people to answer the how did you hear about a survey. We're gonna make it custom that you can give us really detailed answers. And then we're gonna do a fallback that's like, if you click through a UTM, we're gonna give that one credit if they did not answer the how did you hear about a survey. Um, So that was our baseline. And what I said with that was, if we cannot prove a channel works purely on how did you hear about us, like people saying, like we turn on TV, we should hear people say it was TV. Hmm. And if we don't see enough of that, we just walk away. And that, that was a very good forcing function around like first set, like realistic benchmarks. If you turn on TV, don't expect similar to Facebook CAC within the first week, maybe within eight weeks, you're getting double the CAC of Facebook. So we'd always kind of set this like wave of like, when you turn on an ad, like we did a waterfall, it's like 5% buy in the first week. And then it's, you know, 20% by the second week and then 50% by the fourth week. So you do see, if you turn on media spend, you should expect kind of this wave of people joining because of that new channel. And we just wanted to be really, let's say, in, well, I hate the word, but intentional about the way mm. we looked at it. And if you could not prove it through this specific lens, even if we're wrong, like even if this is incremental to the business and better for us, if we cannot prove it through this one lens that I'm paying the most attention to, it's not worth it for now. So we're not a brand awareness company. We are a direct response. We need people to buy within four to eight weeks. So if you cannot prove that people are saying, I heard about you through this new media channel you're doing to a certain level, we walk away from it. So that was how you get kind of a more detailed view of like, okay, don't just say, hey, try any test to prove this. Don't just do a geo holdout here and prove that it worked in this one geo in this one moment. If you launch it and it's not showing up in the how'd you hear about us, for me, it was was something we would just say no to. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. 
With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, (laughs) I could really use Current. (laughs) I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. So then we're, how do you manage the, well, we had the pandemic. There was the fitness side of things where, you know, the Pelotons of the world skyrocketed. And so how do you validate some of the, the, I guess, science, the intention, whatever you called it, you know, to, to, to do that because like Peloton just, everyone's stuck at home. So they, they got a bike and now Peloton is not doing so well. Like how did you one validate some of your hypotheses over that wave? And then now given people are not, at least from what I understand, buying Pelotons, like I'm assuming you guys got affected as well. Yeah. So Relative to like, uh, I'm guessing you're talking about like, how did we measure the effectiveness of channels during COVID versus after COVID? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah so, so you're the way, way more I see articulate. it. You should be a host too. Did you learn to be a, a podcast host at the same time while you were cooking and doing machine learning and marketing? <laughs> nope. No, no. I, that's the one The one area I'm a firm believer of. I, I will only be a, a guest, no hosting. For now. But, um, for now. For, for now. But yeah, what I would say is like, the great thing about the how do you hear about it is it actually does give you a better view into that. And you have to remember too, like I think it was just a little bit after COVID, iOS 14.5 hit, um, which basically removed a lot of people's lenses to look at the mm-hmm. efficiency of some of these channels um, because of the way that it was blocking a lot of data that people were using to make decisions uh, within the channels. So when COVID hit, it, it increased the efficiency of ads because more people were interested from the same audience. If I targeted a thousand people that looked like uh, like you, and then during COVID, and I targeted the same a thousand, about twice as many people were, were willing, two to three times actually, were, were willing to convert out of that audience just because all the other options have been removed. You can't go to a physical gym. Uh, you know, you can't maybe uh, go as far out of your city or something like uh, to go to the classes. So all that happened. So what it did is, is our how'd you hear about a survey, we saw a spike in like a reduction in customer acquisition costs for each channel and a spike, but only for specific channels. There were some channels that were affected more or less than others. And oftentimes uh, I would say like paid social is the one that's the most, is really good at finding that audience that's resonating right now. So like when COVID hit, it probably found a lot more people who were like, hey, I used to be at a boxing gym. 
I never would have bought this product. Now things have changed. My behavior on uh, Facebook or Instagram is highlighting this. They're a good audience now. So the how did you hear about us lens when you take all the way back, everything increased in conversion rate, but not everything scaled the same. So then you could see the opportunity. And for us, it was in paid social during the pandemic. So we went hard there. Did a little bit of TV, did a little bit of influencer, a lot of other places that, that gained efficiency. So channels that wouldn't work the year before were now suddenly working because the critical mass in the audience is bigger, or at least there is a critical mass in the audience. So if you run a TV campaign, oh, well, actually, everyone is your customer now. Hmm. Whereas before, if someone had decided they're not an at-home workout person, bam, your, your audience is cut in half in terms of efficiency. So that was there. And then as soon as the pandemic slowed down, we did start to see that in our data. And that's when we pulled off certain channels. That's when we started pulling off. So like we did start to see, like as gyms reopened, the efficiency lost in paid social, in influencer TV podcast. And so we pulled off of them to the point that it, it came back to kind of an equilibrium point. Okay. So tell me about how on the PR side, on the advertising side, you're, you know, you're getting exposure because you're a you're a bit of a unicorn, a bit of a darling, and you know you're you got exposure on, on Forbes and whatnot. But being a Canadian group of founders, you know, we were talking in the pre-show about you know some misconceptions or misquotations. How do you manage that? Do you just laugh it off? Do you have any stories? Oh yeah, definitely a lot of stories. Uh, so oftentimes, especially in the beginning, I feel like this is Michael Seibel that told me this uh, when you're at Y Combinator, and it was basically. When someone's interviewing for a PR article, like and you're, you're going on a show or you're going to be interviewed, you should just have a list in front of you that is the incredibly simple one or two points you want them to take away. And no matter what they ask, you just go back to those one or two points. Because the problem is, is if you say 100 things, they're yeah. going to choose what are the 100 things they're going to remember and they're going to talk about. So you might do a big, a big like exactly, exactly like this podcast. We spoke, we're going to speak for like 30, 40 minutes. And you might choose a voice clip that's like, eh, really mediocre to the message I'm trying to get out. I don't actually have a message in this one, but if I did, I would kind of try to always bring it back to the one or two things I want you to actually write about and not talk about too much other than that. Because what often happens is we'll have an article come out and they'll focus on something that means nothing to us. So that's the first one where we'll read an article and they'll be like, wow, they really cared about this weird specific angle that someone just kind of mentioned offhand. And that's the entire like a hook of the article and it's nothing to do with what we actually want people to know. So to give an example, we may have done something in the past that we don't do anymore. Like we offered a solution for gyms and an article might talk all about that, even though we were just saying that's what we used to do. And now we're mm -hmm. selling directly to consumers and the article is just all about the gym. And you're like, wait, 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 <laughs> I know you wanted to write about the gym because that's something you wanted to write about, but really it's not, it doesn't benefit both parties. If the message they put out to the world, has nothing to do with what you want the consumer to understand about your business. So it's as if they write like, the, you know, this is made for professional fighters in their article, which has been written about us before. They're like, this product is for high level amateurs and professionals. If that's not true, you want to make sure they stick to kind of, if you were a consumer reading this, how do you get the most value out of this business? How do you understand it in your context? We want them to say, this is for beginners. This is for everyone. So you just have to be careful with what you say. And then on top of that, when they're looking for extra facts in the story, they'll sometimes stretch the truth. Sometimes, especially probably now with ChatGPT, they'll say things that are just straight up <laughs> like uh, hallucinated, I would say. <laughs> so, so one of the funny ones was um, we had an early article. And I remember the, the funny thing too was it was, our, um, it was Tommy who's from, from Boston. So the American 
founder was running PR and he got a story out there that basically said all of the Canadian founders met at the University of Canada. And like, that was just like an intro line of the story. And Tommy felt so bad because he's like, I didn't tell them that. Like, I didn't just say there's some magical one university in Canada that you guys all (laughs) met at because we didn't meet at a university necessarily. Like a few of us met when they were younger and then I met like at an event. So like there actually is no like university tie-in. And I think the the person writing the article just wanted a really quick summary of like, how did they meet each other? Ah, they met at the University of Canada, which for those, I don't know, I, I think your audience is fairly Canadian, but those that don't know, that is not a university. <laughs> so so we basically you're telling me if, if someone applies to Ballistic Arts, my company, and says, I went to the University of Canada, that I should probably think twice about hiring them? Yeah, okay. I yeah, or you got to check which one. Is it the University of Canada at Montreal or the University of Canada Toronto? <laughs> yeah, which, very, which very campus? University. Which campus? That's right, that's right. <laughs> So then what 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 about the future of marketing for for y'all? You guys have kind of went from I think 60 founders to now I think 50 some odd staff. So what's what's next on the horizon from a marketing perspective? Yeah, I think you know there's always um a good tension between how much are you going to pay for growth and how much are you going to get growth through specific product initiatives or like launching new things. So there's there's always that push and pull of like, how long can you sell or rely on paid channels to get you growth? I definitely subscribe close to maybe some of the reforge topics on this, which are around like paid media is the catalyst or let's say the, uh, the, the fire that lights a bigger engine for you. So you have to think of it, at least in my view, in two ways is how's your paid media getting you towards a critical mass of people that then spins up a flywheel that is not reliant on paid. Hmm. Because at the end of the day, like, I don't know, it's my own perspective, you don't want to pay for growth forever. And if only you're only paying for growth, like I got news for you, someone's going to raise more and they're going to beat you on paid growth. Hmm. But if you actually build a useful product to the market, you're solving a real need, referral goes up, people are writing about you, people are talking about you, you don't have to pay every time someone's promoting your product. That's when you start to get into that space. And I think... If you design a product in a way that the referral becomes, let's say, makes the product more enjoyable or more fun for you, that's the best referral, right? Not a paid incentive referral, but one that's like, hey, if you join this, it makes my life easier. The classics, you know, Slack, Asana, all these ones are like, if you join Slack, it makes both of our lives easier. Slack doesn't need to pay me to tell you that, right? It's like, you're just going to naturally spread it out. So there are some products and companies that if with just a tweak, Product growth can come, but it needs to be started with some level of, let's say, paid marketing uh, growth. So I do find that oftentimes I, I try to work equally on both sides, which is how do we get paid media to be efficient, knowing that CACs are only going to go up, mm. right? Like the more you spend, it's, it's always on a diminishing return curve. So unless you're increasing lifetime value for each person, which allows you to spend more on your customer acquisition, you're probably not going to be a great business unless you have that second side, which is the more people we get into our product, the more people love us and refer us, that should offset your CAC as you scale. So to me, that's, that's the way I think about it is if you're only focused on one and you're just a top of funnel, I need more people to buy my product. But as a marketer, you're not thinking, what are the unmet needs of the consumer and how are we actually communicating that to product or whoever's building the thing so we can actually solve those better? You're going to always be stuck with the, you scale up spend, it costs more, you have to scale back. You scale mm-hmm. up spend it costs mm-hmm. me to scale back. When when you could have taken some of that funding or some of that time and energy and put it onto 
talking to customers. Hey, what are we missing the mark on here? Or what are you buying instead of us and why? Like those to me are the most insightful ones of like, you know, we don't beat Peloton in terms of a fun at-home workout for most of the audience, but we beat Peloton in terms of a workout when people are like, hey, I want a non-traditional workout. I, I don't like biking. I don't like running. I don't like weights. We win that audience. So the more you talk to that audience, the more you realize they have a, a specific set of needs. They want a more three-dimensional movement baked into. These are the kind of people who would maybe do uh, like a lot more yoga classes or things that are more like, I want to just not sit on a machine and just push a thing. They want to actually evolve their body, get better and get use out of the motion. So once you understand that that's the audience, you can start building a product that really satisfies those needs. So you can capture more of that. You don't want to be the, let's beat Peloton on every facet because to be honest, they're going to win. Hey, I want to bike in my house. Mm-hmm. Like fight camps are not going to compete for people who are completely fine biking in their house. Like, so there's no sense in killing yourself, trying to market to them, figure out that group that really loves you, build a really good product for them. And then you get that five wheel going. Now, every person that is into non-traditional workouts is going to say to their other friend who's into non-traditional workouts, Hey, you should try this out because it's so much better. So that's what has allowed us to scale to certain degrees. Cause if we're just relying on paid media, that diminishing return curve is brutal. Yeah, you know, I agree. And and it's a, I think there's a book called The Blue Ocean Strategy. And I think it talks a little bit about that too, right? That you're not competing head on with some of the big the big people in the in the in the sphere and see where you can really leverage and find your target. And quite frankly, that's funny enough. I'm I'm a fight camp, I don't know what do you, what do you call them? Fight camp camper? I don't know. What you're, you call you're, you're a fight camp user. You're a fight camp I'm a member. Fight camp yeah. user and um and we were talking the pre-call because I would have used it a lot longer, but you couldn't get the trackers up to Canada. And, and that's where we started talking about how you're, you're actually Canadian. And you thought it was funny that, you know, Canadians can get it. But now I did get my tracker, but I, you know, I have a martial arts background and being in my mid forties, you know, it's not great to uh, go and do martial arts while, you know, it's especially during COVID, I wasn't going to do any martial arts period, but you know, getting old and whatnot, I just wanted to kind of be active not really wanting to sit on a bike, though I do have a spin bike. I don't have a Peloton, but I, I have a spin bike. And But it was, how do I get up? And also, you know, sometimes, you know, running a marketing agency can be tough. So like rather than sitting on a bike and getting my frustration up, punching something, kicking something is much nicer. And having something to track my progress uh, really made it for me a lot more fun, a lot more engaging because sometimes when you punch a bag, you get your frustrations out. But, you know, getting your frustrations out might only take five, 10 minutes. And then, and then what is that, that the, is that the end of the workout, but like having something like this and, and someone that, you know, kind of talking you through it and, and having a little bit of uh, communal competition, I think it's, it's been fun. So I, I really commend you guys for, for doing that. Um, maybe we'll, we'll go quickly to our, our rapid fire round. Cause you know, we're kind of limited on time uh, and just to get a little bit to know about Patrick. So best place to get smoked meat sandwich in Montreal. I'm a vegan, but oh, uh, Schwartz's for sure. But. Yeah, so I I used to be I used to be a meat eater. I'm a vegan now too. I should have. I remembered you said you're a vegetarian, but I gotta ask anyway. You're from Montreal, okay? So what, where's the best? Today. Where's the best vegan place to eat in? Well, you're in LA now. You're in Costa Mesa, right? Costa Mesa. Uh, now I'm in Hollywood, but yeah, you're in Hollywood. Okay, best place to eat in Hollywood that's vegan. Okay, there's a. I'll, I'll shout out to Palms Thai. There's a. I'm right on the edge of Thai Town, and there's this amazing Thai food place. And Thai food is great vegan because they use a lot of like coconut as substitutes for milk and tons of just spicy uh, vegetables and and things. So 
I would say Palms Tie if you're ever in the Hollywood. It's right at the end of the Walk of Fame. So, oh, nice. Right there. Nice. At the end. I'll go next time in LA. We we uh, go to Gracias Madre in yes, uh, in West that, Hollywood. They're good too. Really good queso there, and, and good 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 everything. Quite frankly, yeah. It's like it's a what is it? It's a it's a like a, a nut queso, right? Like based yeah, on yeah, cashew or something. Right. We could geek out about vegan food all day long, but uh, I don't think we're, I don't think the I think we're going to lose some of the audience. <laughs> lose the audience. Okay. Uh, favorite thing that you guys did to keep from being keep from going insane when you guys were just six of you sitting, you know, in that one apartment. What did you guys do for fun? Because you couldn't go out and go and go to eat and and whatnot, right? So what did you? Do? <laughs> we we would still go to the bar every once in a while, but we would like we would drink at home and then go to the bar. <laughs> we wouldn't drink at the bar. Did you uh, so make was... your own booze too? Is that what you end up doing? No, but coming to the states from from Canada, two things that were really funny is a we didn't know where to buy alcohol. Like like what there's no SAQ. So so in Quebec, there's an SAQ and there's the beer store and all these places there. When we first landed in the states, we we would go into like a grocery store or like and where were we? We were in New York, and I think you had to buy them in like specific places. The CVS, which like I wouldn't go to a pharmacy to buy my alcohol, so that never crossed my <laughs> mind. And someone's like, "Oh, just go to the pharmacy to get all your alcohol." I'm like, "Oh wow, yeah, that's that's wild." Like hard alcohols and things like it was it was just an absolute thing. We'd go to like the corner stores, and they wouldn't have this right. The corner really? store selling. Alcohol in the States is like not a common thing. They have a liquor store, which is very different. <laughs> so anyway, so we couldn't find it as easy, but then we found a few brands and we're like, oh my God, they have like multiple liters of wine at, at like pharmacies. And we would just go there for like five bucks to get multiple liters of wine. So early days, that was how we maybe blew off some steam as we would uh, drink together and then go to a bar and hang out. Um, so that was fun. And then I would say we were, uh, we were not great communicators early on, but we wanted to work on it. So uh, we would go for long bike rides together was another one. We all had bikes. We had no car. Well, we had one car uh, between like the six of us. And, uh, and so we would bike a lot of places and kind of try to get outdoors every once in a while. Um, but yeah, tempers did flare. And, and I would say the thing that kept us all together is the willingness to always work it out, even if we were kind of tough to work with sometimes. Uh, we just had a, this, I don't know, we've been together for so long that I don't even remember how we really stuck together, but there's moments where we're almost, you know, almost walked away. And wow. uh, oftentimes it just comes from someone being willing to have a tough conversation and be like, Hey, you know, I think that was a shitty thing or, you know, here's hmm. how we should communicate through these. So we worked on that. We got coaching and YC definitely a big help. I think anytime we ran into really tough founder conflict, YC was a great sounding board uh, around it. And they have a philosophy that I think is called, Iterated prisoner's dilemma, which is a fun one to think through. Uh, if you guys don't know uh, that one, I don't know that one. Iter- what was it? Say it again. I think it's called iterated prisoner's dilemma, which is basically the prisoner's dilemma is two people who like if one of them tells on the other one and that person like keeps their mouth shut, this the other person does a ton of jail time. This one goes away for free, and it's <sighs> but if you both say that you both did it, you both do medium time, and so it's this trade off of like when should you be nice and when should you not be nice. And so the view of iterated prisoner's dilemma is imagine that game, but you have to play it over Mm -hmm. and over again. And you know what the person did last time. So you're just basically the goal is if you're always kind of being a jerk, the other Mm -hmm. person's going to realize that and they're always just going to be a jerk back. And so it's in the context of like, should you screw over your co-founder in any meaningful way? The question is, are you likely going to run into that person again in a way that you need them to be on the other side of the table? Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, especially in the startup world, if you start to be shitty with co-founders or, or in the, or, sorry, 
those sort of start to be bad with, with <laughs> co-founders or like make like obvious mean moves within the company, you're going to run into them later in your career anyway, mm. or you're going to run into them in the ecosystem. And then they're going to re- remember what you did and they're going to hit you back with the same kind of um, like, I'm not going to trust you this time. So, so it's, it's kind it's of like just a realization thing. of, you know, karma can bite you in the butt. And especially given like the startup ecosystem being so small, like karma will is guaranteed to come will, back up. Will guarantee. Yeah. It's not yeah. can, it will. All right. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Hey, so um, where can we find you guys? Tell us, plug, plug the, the company. Yep. No, definitely. So like join fightcamp.com or even fightcamp.com works. You can go check out what we offer right now. We are getting into Canada. We're available for most of the United States. Uh, currently, I think, except like maybe Hawaii and, and potentially Alaska, but in Canada, we're trackers. You can buy them in BC, in Ontario and in Alberta. And we're just getting the bag now up into Ontario. So if you're in Ontario, the bag's there. If you're in BC or Alberta, wait a little bit. Uh, and then probably in a few months, we'll figure out how to get to the rest of Canada. But we're, uh, we're doing it fairly slowly just to make sure we're opening the right markets at the right times. Um, but yeah, basically, if you want a quick summary, if you want to do boxing at home or kickboxing, we offer guided workouts from trainers, all filmed down here in Costa Mesa, and punch tracking technology on top of it, that as you're doing the workout, you can see the number of punches you're throwing, the average velocities your punches, the output of that workout, and you're going to be following along to a series of combinations that the trainer is going to teach you. So if you have no experience in boxing, we have tons of tutorials that get you up to speed to know it. So you don't need to be like Ted coming in with decent experience. If you just want something that's, if you're bored with running, biking, weights, and all your friends are like, they're so easy and fun to do. And you're like, I want something different. And I actually want to enjoy what I'm doing and have fun. I think Fight Camp could be a great one for you guys. So I would check that out. And, you know, if anything, maybe just try local boxing uh, around you. And then if you really do like it, Fight Camp is the best thing you can do to continue boxing at home. Amen. All right, Patrick. Hey, it was a pleasure to meet you. When we're when I'm down next in uh, Hollywood, West Hollywood, we'll grab some bites and you can show me around your hood. Yes. Grab some Thai food. Thank you, Ted. Grab some Thai food. All right, man. Have a good one. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Marketing News Canada. I'm Ted, and this is Patrick, and we're signing out. See ya. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded at the Jelly Marketing Studio, thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editor, Travis Jeffers. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.